Hey, Jay. So I've been thinking about Jamie Madrox. Multiple man? And that's the one. He's, he's kind of weird, right? Well, by what standard, Miles? I mean, it's not like the rest of X-Factor was ever particularly well-adjusted. Well, sure, right, but I mean, with his mutant powers. They manifested at birth, when the doctor spanked him to get him to take his first breath. Mutant powers normally fully manifested puberty, not then. That's not terribly weird. I mean, he's far from the only one. Take Nightcrawler, for instance, or Damien Tripp. Damien Tripp. I'm trying to remember what his deal was. Time Traveler, right? Uh, sort of. He could exist simultaneously across all points in time. Ah, tomato, tomato. And he was obsessed with Madrox. What was the deal with that? Okay, so in the alternate future trip came from, X-Factor Investigations. Madrox's detective agency? Exactly. So they found a way to repower all the mutants that the Scarlet Witch depowered on M-Day. That's good. At which point mutants took over the world, started a bunch of wars, and generally kind of ruined everything. That's bad. So Trip figured he'd beat Xavier to the punch by going back and picking up Madrox as a little kid. Then he'd train and indoctrinate Madrox, which would presumably keep him off the path that led to the mess in Trip's future. Oh, and to bring things full circle, the fact that his powers had also manifested at birth was the excuse that Trip used to try to get Madrox's parents to turn their kid over to him. Did it work? Obviously not, given that Madrox was in Xavier's care before going to Moira McTaggart. So his parents gave him to Xavier? Oh, hell no. When they told Trip no, he responded by first founding his own detective agency. Weird flex, but okay. And then killing them with a magic tornado. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 373 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to some stuff actually happening in this era where not a lot happens in between crossovers. This is a big deal, the events going on in this episode. And most of them take place in context of the team X-Factor, whom we haven't checked in on in a while, so perhaps we should look back at, you know, where they've been, what they've been up to, and who's running around with them now. X-Factor is the U.S. government's own team of mutants, and their lineup is kind of strange these days. On the less peculiar end of the spectrum, their leader is Forge. Uh, Forge has techno powers, he can invent and, and build pretty much anything out of pretty much anything. And he is serving immediately below X-Factor's human government liaison, Dr. Valerie Cooper. Also on the less peculiar side of things is longtime X-Factor member Lorna Dane, Polaris, with her powers of magnetism. From the not terribly distant future, we have Shard. Shard is a holographic recreation of B Lucas Bishop's dead sister, who was herself also a future cop, and she has recently become a... Uh, I believe, photonic organism through some solid-light techno-weirdness. Kind of like a Pinocchio becoming a real boy, but more confusing. There's also the shape-shifting Mystique and the Savage Sabertooth, both evil enough to be mostly successfully controlled by assorted implants and shock collars. That's right, they are serving on X-Factor in lieu of prison sentences at the moment, I believe. 
And there's Wildchild, a smaller and nicer version of Sabretooth, who is kind of redundant to the big guy, if we're being honest. Sorry, Kyle. Also, his name is Kyle. Kyle's a fine name. No, it's totally a fine name. It's it's just it's just very much like a per- normal person name. So so it's funny that it's Wildchild. That's all. Oh, uh, that's fine. Be Wild Kyle. I kind of like Wild Kyle, but Wild would be spelled with a Y, like Wild Stallions from Bill and Ted. Yes. Anyway. X-Factors had many other members in its incarnation as a government-sponsored team, but they've all drifted variously away. For instance... Havoc got captured by Dark Beast, apparently brainwashed, and went on to found a new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Strong Guy is in a coma after a massive heart attack before the Age of Apocalypse. And some time ago, multiple man Jamie Madrox died of the legacy virus. Speaking of government stuff... The human son of villainous X-Factor members Sabretooth and Mystique, Raiden Creed, is currently running for U.S. president on a campaign of anti-mutant hate and fear. He's... he's just the worst. And because he's the worst, X-Men, Iceman, and Cannonball have infiltrated his campaign to keep an eye on him. So far, they've mostly learned that, yep, he's the worst. And that brings us to, actually, an issue of Uncanny X-Men before we dive into X-Factor, because... Great and Creed is the uh, the big theme of a lot of this. So let's talk about Uncanny X-Men number 340, Relativity. This issue is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Madrera, inked by Tim Townsend, colored by Steve Bucciolato and Team Buse, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and Colia Fuse. This is a very quiet, talky issue for Joe Madrera, and gotta say, he handles it really well. He really does. Um, he's not an artist I really associate with like, intense talking head, you know, personal feelings-y body language type type art and type issues. And that's what this is, and he does it beautifully. Yeah, so, uh, well done, Joe. Again. Damn it, Joe, stop being, like, good at everything. You're making the rest of us look bad. I mean, I think in terms of, of, of basic drafting skills, pretty much all of these artists make at least us look bad. Well, that's... That's true, and in fact, some of the folks who donated to Equality Florida at the level where they get uh, drawings by me will soon find that out uh, quite clearly. See, now I'm just thinking about Trivia Nights when we just used to draw dicks all over our form. Oh yeah, we did. We're, we're mature adults. We've always been mature adults. Anthropomorphic ones acting out little plays. It was kind of like uh, the goblins and demons and stuff at the bottom of Chris Pacello's Generation X pages, but uh, more phallic. Much, much easier to draw. That's the problem. Like, dicks are really easy to draw. It's true. I mean, easier than Chris Bichello-style monsters, anyway. Well, yeah. Anyway. Anyway, speaking of dicks, Graydon Creed um, is is running for president, and he is... Gosh, he's, he's just a terrible person on every front. And as you may recall, Iceman's dad showed up at one of his rallies, that was in X-Men number 58... And was, you know, and then spoke out against Creed, interrupted his speech, and was dragged off by security. Uh, What apparently happened was that Creed had security beat him up and found out that he was the father of uh, Drake Roberts, Bobby Drake's uh, very, very clever pseudonym, as he infiltrated the campaign, and tried to get some kind of incriminating information about Bobby from him. Bobby's dad refused, so they beat him and left him in a clearing in the woods and ditched Iceman there as well. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty rough. Like, Creed's talking to Bobby about sins of the father and stuff, and then asks him to get out of the car, and he just finds his 
dad beaten half to death in the forest. I thought it was a plane. No, no, no. They were in a car driving to a plane, and then Creed and his staff flew away in the plane, leaving Bobby with his seriously injured dad in the woods. I'm sorry. It's finals weekend. I am very, very tired. Nah, that's entirely reasonable. And uh, to be fair, I was confused by that part, too. I had to read it a couple times to understand which vehicles were going where. So Bobby is having a complicated time, because he and his dad don't get along. He always assumed his dad just hated him. But his dad got hurt first standing up for Bobby for mutants in general, and then refusing to out Bobby as a mutant to Creed's people. Yeah, and we've certainly seen uh, William Drake being awful. I mean, he was totally a jerk to Bobby about being a mutant a number of times. We saw that in the Iceman miniseries, for instance. He was just generally racist toward various ethnic minorities. I mean, God, I remember how he was to Iceman's girlfriend Opal Tanaka for not being white. Like, he's not been a terribly sympathetic character, and yet here is one way in which he was. And I do appreciate that the comic doesn't try to undo anything William has done before. It just shows him as complex. Somebody who's done a good thing here, but in the past has done some very bad things. We get most of this context um, as Iceman and uh, Storm sit on the roof of the hospital talking. Meanwhile, Wolverine, uh, down at the street level, is is keeping the Friends of Humanity at bay, and uh, Gambit is keeping an eye on Mr. Drake in his hospital room. Why, why would you have Gambit do that? Like, I know there aren't that many X-Men these days, but you have options, guys. I mean, bear in mind that nobody likes Bobby's dad. Oh, okay, yeah. So they're like, oh, God, uh, we don't really want this guy to, like, get killed. We need someone to guard him, but we don't want him to have a good time. Hey, Remy! But what actually ends up happening is that William Drake and Gambit have a mutually enlightening conversation in which they determine that each does or did his thing— the X-Men being out as mutants and fighting to protect a world that hates and fears them, Drake standing up to Creed— because they believe that it's the right thing to do. And at the end of the issue, after that conversation and after his own conversation with Storm on the roof, Bobby ends up leaving the X-Men to spend time with his dad while he recuperates. And Bobby won't be gone for long. He'll be gone for a shorter time, for instance, than Archangel and Psylocke are are currently gone. He'll be back for Operation Zero Tolerance, uh, somewhat against his will. But yeah, for now, that's a hell of a statement for him to decide to dedicate himself to this guy who has really just made his life worse for most of his life. Meanwhile, speaking of guys who make things worse, you're just handing me all of these today. Um, Graydon Creed is bent on testing the loyalty of his his assistant, uh, Samson Guthrie with a Y. Again, the X-Men are not good at pseudonyms. This is Sam Guthrie cannonball. Um... And he is testing Sam's loyalty mostly by asking him leading questions about his father, because Creed's a little obsessed with that theme. And in fact, when, when Sam asks him about his own dad, he, he smashes the glass he's holding in his hand. So this is interesting. I, I know we've had our issues with how Cannonball's been written in this era as sort of like the starstruck hayseed of the team, despite his history with X-Force and New Mutants, but I like him here. I like that his sort of inherent honesty and decency 
put him in a good position to connect with Creed. Like, he looks like what Creed considers to be normal. He is a white cis male who is not obviously a mutant. He's got this sort of heartland background with a family that was very healthy, although his dad died young. And yet we have Sam's commentary, like, as he smirks at a... Creed's giant bodyguards, thinking that he could easily uh, remove the fists that they're brandishing at him if he felt like it. We have him sort of analyzing this whole thing in thought bubbles as he talks to Creed and baiting Creed into getting more and more angry. Like, Sam's actually a great choice for this, and I think this is the time I've liked him most on the X-Men of this era. If only they'd given him a decent pseudonym. God. You know, not everyone can be good at everything. Everybody's got to have a dump stat. At least he's spelled his differently. This isn't a Moonstar situation. Hey, 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 shut up. That's, that's, that's a good disguise. It's not a good disguise, Miles. Well, anyway, uh, Sam's doing all right. Bobby's cover is blown, but Sam is still trusted by Creed. And in a, a psychic meetup with Jean... He assures her that he's there till the end, which, lucky for him, won't be for much longer. Okay, but let's talk about what Jean's reading while she's just in a bar waiting for Sam's psychic message. She is reading The Sword of Shannara by Terry Brooks. Uh, Do you remember that series, Jay? I do. I started the first one and I could never really get into it. You know, it's, it's fine. It's basically lord of the rings but characters have different names and there's an interesting science fiction twist partway through i think the first book they're they're fine but yeah you're right there was a tv show a few years ago i think oh yeah i think so i i never saw it which i also didn't watch so two things are notable for me about the sort of genre uh not the plot because it's been done uh but first it was so generic that during my brief period of aspiring to be a humor writer when i was young i started a book that i called mainstream fantasy novel uh which was just the most generic possible trope-based fantasy novel it could be and uh, the sort of genre was probably the biggest inspiration for it secondly there was a video game that i played it was a pc game um and i think it took place after the books but it just replaced all the characters with like their descendants who looked pretty much the same and had very similar names so like Kelsit the troll had a son named Telsic the troll most importantly though the gardener got replaced by like a, a demon or a goblin or something i don't i don't remember at one point in the main setting you were in and when you first talked to him his way of seeming innocent and uh, trying to cover for his uh, his espionage was to greet you by just telling you, I'm the gardener. I just love it. You infiltrate like the most uh, innocent, un- unsuspected uh, role within a household, and then you just talk like a goddamn demon to everybody around you. It's great. It's giving me strong Milkman conspiracy vibes. Uh, kind of, yes. Uh, so, there you go. Those are the two vaguely interesting things that I know about the Sword of Shannara. The end. That's it. That's all we've got for you today, folks. Uh, no, there's more. Anyway, Cannonball does make a statement that I think sums up this plotline pretty well. Right, he compares the Creed campaign to supervillains. Less obvious, but maybe more dangerous. We're confronted by something we can't just hit. We're fighting an idea. Okay, but you can hit Graydon Creed. Uh, yes. Please, uh, listeners, hit Graydon Creed. You're allowed. The, the complicated relationship between 
protest violence and optics is is one I've been thinking about a lot lately. Fair enough, yeah. This issue also brings up something that I've been thinking about, the idea of like fighting fair versus fighting dirty. So at one point, one of the heroes, I forget who, mentions that they could just out Creed as being the son of two mutants, and that would probably crash his campaign. But that would be fighting dirty, and so they don't want to do it. And I don't know. I mean, High Ground is all fine and dandy, but that dude stood to do a lot of very, very real damage, and in fact has. Like, people have died. See, I disagree about the problem with that. I don't think the problem is that it's fighting dirty. I think it's the problem is that it's fighting in a way that directly feeds into anti-mutant sentiment. Ah, uh, okay. So that even though you could make this problem perhaps better, you're making the larger problem worse. Right. Well, or you're you're playing into or contributing to the larger problem. Whether Creed is a more significant component of the problem than what damage you could do with that is an entirely different question. Yeah, and I'm glad they're addressing it, even if they don't really do much with it, because that's really important in storylines like this. Mm-hmm. And I am honestly really surprised that no one does out Creed in that context, because on one hand, yeah, it would feed into anti-mutant sentiment, but on the other hand, he's clearly a wildly dangerous figure. His parents clearly don't give a fuck if he if 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 it's publicly known that he's their kid or his his birth parents. Um, I we never really learned anything about his adoptive family, do we? Uh, I don't think so, no. I mean, hell, we learn more about Havoc's adoptive family. Well, in, in that one issue. One is more than zero. But yeah, that's that's an interesting aspect of Creed that we don't know anything about the family that raised him, that he doesn't have he doesn't have his parents up on stage with him. Like Um and there 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 is that that space for Sabretooth and Mystique to move back into or or make themselves known in context of as as kind of a palpable absence within his campaign. Agreed. And you know, I think that just kind of highlights the fact that Graydon Creed, while he is an interesting concept, is not an interesting character like at all. I mean, in the issues we're covering here, they have a few different artists and Creed looks nothing like himself between uh, those issues. And we've seen that before. Like you look at say Senator Kelly, the other big anti-mutant politician who's famous in, in X-Men history, Everybody knows what Kelly looks like. Like, yeah, different artists will draw him a little bit differently, but he's always going to have the same basic facial structure, the same basic hairstyle and color. He's going to have those glasses. Reed, like, his appearance is white guy, and his personality is some form of jerk who hates mutants, and he doesn't really get that much more specific than that. Yeah, I think in lieu of interesting, when talking about what he's not, I'd probably say developed, because he's... There's there's just not much there to be interesting or boring. Like he's got nothing in the really in the way of personal history. He's got nothing really in the way of more complex motivations. Yeah, I mean, wasn't he in the upstarts a while back? Like I can't even remember. He just slides off the brain. God, was he? Uh, you know, actually I just looked it up as we were talking and um yes, yes he was. Huh. Anyway, one thing that's interesting about Creed is what his fate is in this series of issues, so I vote we move on to that and jump into X-Factor number 128, Night of the Hounds. Right on. This is written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Jeff Matsuda, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Glynis Oliver, lettered by Richard Starkings and Connor McCraft and Coley Fuse. 
So this starts with X-Factor called in to hunt down a group of fugitive masked mutants before the local yokels can lynch them. So these racist jerks, a lot of them have mustaches. They're very much portrayed as like the redneck stereotype. But Jay, why are mustaches reserved for racist jerks so much of the time in comics? Um, J. Jonah Jameson isn't a racist jerk. I mean, he's a jerk. He's just not not racist. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, and, and thank you for reminding me of that. Because, damn it, I say we bring back the noble mustache. The mustache used to be a symbol of, of trustworthiness, of strength and truth and honor and justice. And then the cops got their hands on it. God damn it. Again. Well, mustaches are great, and uh, I would just have a mustache if I didn't like also having a beard so much. So I thought at first, when we saw this group of, of fugitive mutants, that their leader might actually be Maverick. Oh, totally. Like, they all have these very 90s costumes. I would describe them as ranging from ninja to ninja but the kind from G.I. Joe. And uh, on the, the latter end of that spectrum, yeah, one of them has that mask. Like, it's just so inherently 90s. They've also, several of them also have, have, have things inhibiting the eye holes of their masks, which is not great design. Oh, I love it, though. I love that one of them has what looks like one of those ninja masks, you know, with the sort of slit over both eyes. But then there's a piece of cloth that just goes directly over the center of one of the eyes. Like, the only part that's covered is the most important part. It's great. It's like Jonah Hex's mouth a little bit. Oh, yeah. But, you know, fabric instead of badly healed flesh, I guess. Do we know that? I guess we don't know that. These characters are mysterious, at least for now. So, this issue also really, really highlights Sabretooth and Wildchild's redundancy on the team as they both track this this group of renegade mutants using exactly the same skills and with exactly the same approach over exactly the same territory. It's really unfortunate. Like, I, I get it. I mean, Marvel wanted to recreate the really interesting Sabretooth-Wildchild pairing from Age of Apocalypse, but this version of Wildchild is not that kind of savage, almost animalistic, pet-like character that he was in Age of Apocalypse. Sabretooth is not the noble Wolverine-like figure he was in Age of Apocalypse. Instead, we just get animalistic tracker and animalistic tracker who's less interesting for the most part. And that's Ouch. that's sad. Like, Wildchild could be an awesome character, so why would you put him next to the character who he is least awesome around? I mean, if you're doing that de- deliberately to develop him, if you're using them as mutual foils, that would be one thing. But here they just come off as redundant. It's unfortunate. Something that I do appreciate is addressed in this tracking scene is Shard, reflecting on the fact that, you know, she's actually very qualified to do this kind of work. She was a leader in the XSE in the future, which was a group of mutant cops who tracked down bad mutants. And that's what she's doing here. And I wish they went somewhere with it. Like, maybe she could be jealous of the fact that she's not getting more of a leadership position. Or maybe she could be grateful for the break because she got tired of that role. But she just sort of, like, mentions it. That's something that I think we see a lot in this issue. There's a lot of insight and not a lot of action taken on it. X-Factor in general, in fact, is none too happy about the situation. And they're beginning to challenge their complicity with an increasingly anti-mutant government. Forge thinks to himself. They can candy coat it all they want, but what it all comes down to is mutants hunting mutants for the sole purpose of protecting humans. This book continues to really lean into the idea that X-Factor is sort of the 
progenitor of the Hound program from Days of Future Past, mutants who are sort of enslaved by the ruling parties to hunt down other mutants, which I dig that. I I really I think that's a good idea. That's a good direction to take a book that's adding on more and more villains and stuff to this team that's having the government be more and more sinister with a lowercase s. Well, and that's adding more and more members semi-voluntarily or involuntarily to the team. Like more and more of what X, X Factor does, they're doing under coercion and more and more of them are are only present under coercion. Totally, yeah. So, I don't know, what do you think if we're going to be talking about where the Hound program came from? Do you like the line handling it this way, or would you prefer something more directly tied into Days of Future Past? I like this. I think it does a very, very good job teasing at the structural and organizational roots of the Hound program, instead of playing it as as the product of, you know, just one malefactor. And this this version reads to me as much more plausible, and I, I love the little hints of it. Yeah, me too. I uh, kind of wish they did more with it, but... We are not really familiar with this era of X-Factor, so maybe they do. Howard Mackey, please don't disappoint us. I mean, from decades in the past. So, X-Factor does manage to finally track down and unmask one of the mutants, and in doing so, identifies all of them, because it's Jamie Madrox, the multiple man, who appeared to have died of the legacy virus something like a year ago. So, you know, that's a thing, and we'll talk more about that, but first, let's check in with a not-terribly-well-developed politician who we hate. Which one could that be? I mean, there's only only one star of that show at the moment. That is Graydon Creed. He declares his running mate, who's a Senator Brickman. Uh, he's the third choice after Senator Strawman and Senator Stixman didn't work out. Wah-wah. He's then ambushed in his limo by a superpowered representative of good old Bastion, the mysterious, possibly robotic anti-mutant manipulator and fan of pink and black. Now, this particular dude, who um, dresses in the same color scheme, is named Harper, and I could find zero information about him online. Uh, yeah, he's just sort of there to intimidate Creed and to tell him to continue to keep his distance from the Friends of Humanity, to not do anything stupid like going after Mystique again— And Harper says that he's well aware of the need for discretion with all this, but dude, with his ponytailed mullet and his pointy, curly beard spikes and and those eyebrows that go like three inches out from the sides of his head and those science fiction shades, like, really? Is that how we, is that that what we call discretion? Maybe it's misdirection. If people see him in the limo, they won't assume that Creed is in bed with Friends of Humanity. They'll assume that he's secretly having an affair with a vampire from the future. You know, that's a really good point. Little of that old uh, vampire from the future razzle-dazzle. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to X-Factor number 129, and something that vampires from the future probably shouldn't do, playing with fire. Nice. This issue is written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Jeff Masuda, inked by Art Tiber, colored by Glennis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Coley Fuchs. So, Val Cooper storms furiously into X-Factor's Falls Edge, Virginia base in the middle of the night, and is... Jay, is she wearing, like, a leather jacket and a thigh gun holster over pink Union suit-style pajamas? Am I making that up? No, that's that's definitely what's going on. Okay. I don't know, though. Like, Val seems like a canny lady. You'd think that given the team she has to deal with, she would sleep in work clothes. But, but this is charming, and I know she would be mad if we called her adorable, but... It's adorable. 
I assume that she at least sleeps with the holstered gun. Oh, yeah, that's that's probably true. And she, on behalf of the U.S. government, demands the prisoners that X-Factor has captured. And she's floored when Forge and Polaris are themselves furious about their current role hunting mutants, hunting their old friend Jamie Madrox. That's news to Val. Uh, she was pretty sure Madrox was dead, and the government just told her that these were random mutant murderers. Except wait, Val remembers, and we're reminded in a little footnote, that she actually thought she'd seen him in X-Factor number 111, the last issue before the Age of Apocalypse. And we, the readers, ambiguously saw somebody who was probably him in X-Factor 105 heading into X-Factor's headquarters. That was only five issues after his death, so this has clearly been in the works for a while. But there's no time to process this new revelation because the government only gave her five minutes to talk X-Factor down and get the prisoners before they decided to send their troops in to rough everybody up. Madrox ain't there, though, so uh, they can't really comply. He's in a safe house elsewhere with Shard and Wildchild. X-Factor didn't trust Val Cooper with him. They sent him away. But they do have one wild card left to play, and that, of course, is Mystique. She volunteers, hey, she can be Madrox, and there's this great series of vertical panels that Jeff Matsuda draws where it sort of transitions from her Mystique form to her Madrox form. She smiles more in each panel, she reaches out her hand more in each panel. There's a great sense of motion and shifting to it. And this made me think, let's talk a little bit about how we like Mystique's shape-shifting visuals to be portrayed, because my other big exposure to her right now is gradually watching through X-Men Evolution, where it's more of like a uh, almost Star Trek teleportation effect, like a bit of light that sort of closes in on the center of her body, and then she just has a different form. Hmm. There are two ways I really like it done. One is what we saw in the Sabretooth and Mystique miniseries, when it's kind of protean and bizarre. And the other is when it's just a snap shift between panels. Yeah, okay. So this, then, would not be one of your favorite styles. No, this is fine. It's cool. I think it's well done, but it's not one of my absolute favorites. Fair enough. On the way out, Sabretooth, who's standing guard, aggressively slams into Madrox and sniffs the air, and being Sabretooth lets the tension play out a little before covering for the team's ruse instead of turning them in. It kind of reminds me of recently when the team was intimidated by the government, when they were taken into, taken into the government base while wearing those big manacle handcuff dealies, and... Sabretooth covered for Shard, even though it seemed like he wasn't going to. He really enjoys letting people sweat about whether he's going to keep their secrets or not. Oh yeah, absolutely. And as Mystique is being taken to prison while disguised as Madrox, of course she uses her powers and manipulation to escape this whole thing, escape X-Factor and take care of her own agenda. Like, how many times has she done that at this point? It's damn near every issue. Well, she escapes her captors using a doohickey that Forge gave her, so that that at least was part of the plan. Uh, well, she incapacitates them as far as leaving the mission to do her own thing. That's, that's all Raven. At the aforementioned safe house, Jamie Madrox, the real one, is doing his best to escape Wildchild and escape captivity in general until Shard fires a warning blast— uh, in the background, the various Madroxes are bantering about Wildchild as Madrox Prime is talking to Shard. I think my favorite Madrox line is one of them muttering. I think his name is really Kyle. So yeah, you and Madrox, same page, Jay. 
And Madrox and Shard actually connect, and they what they bond over is a little macabre, but it's that each of them has seen themselves die. Right, because remember, the actual Shard Bishop did in fact die. This recreation of her is just a personality emplate holograph thingam that Bishop made, and she's at the very least seen recordings of the real her's death. Very much not an emplate. Oh, uh, right, a template. Emplate's a different thing. Unplates what killed her. Yeah, well, she got turned into one, I think. It's a whole deal. Madrox, for his position, is also bonding a bit based on his enormous crush on Shard. But while Child's not too mad, he's busy being distracted by another Madrox dupe because they're trying to get all the stars in Super Mario 64 so they can get the secret ending with Yoshi. It actually is very specific in referencing a somewhat niche bit of knowledge about that game that was current at the time, and that pleases me greatly. Again, I wonder specifically about representation and and licensing rights there. Oh, yeah, Nintendo's famously litigious. Yeah. Huh. Well, anyway, we the readers are curious, and all the characters are curious. Didn't Madrox die of the legacy virus? Wasn't that, like, a big deal? Shouldn't he be, well, dead at this point, and not playing N64 and flirting with Shard? And the answer is yes and no, because as... Madrox explains there is, in fact, no Madrox Prime. When he died, only the body that had the virus died. The surviving body, or one of the surviving bodies, I think there were several, had amnesia because of the shock of the death for a while. Uh, the government took him in and, and took advantage of his amnesia and tried to, to use him as a one-man army agent. And after that, at some point, Havoc broke in and tried to recruit him for his new brotherhood. Madrox said no, not wanting to join, you know, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And Havoc let him go, and Madrox's memory was coming back around this time. The government didn't want to deal with a Madrox who knew what was up, so they framed him for murder and sent X-Factor to track him and his various ninja-dressed duplicates down. But let's talk about this, because... In the past, and in fact after this, the idea that there is a Madrox Prime is very, very important. Like, that's a major plot point. I actually prefer it this way. I prefer the idea that all of the dupes of Madrox are equally valid, and when they merge together, there's no sort of uh, lead dupe that is more in charge. But this is a departure. It's a departure that makes a bit of sense if you're going to bring Madrox back from the dead when Madrox Prime died of the legacy virus, but it's a change. I really like this, and I really wish that they'd stuck with it. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Madrox is a good character to have here, though, because we've seen X-Factor change so much lately. I mean, the team has been continually commenting on it, and Madrox is horrified by just how dark and bitter the team has gotten what their role working for the government has become. He's a good character for that because he is really a perfect reminder of the old days. He was the lighthearted heart of the team for so long. That's why it hit so hard when he died in number 100. Like, I guess you could also have Guido, but Guido would have just laughed the whole thing off. Madrox is capable of being a joker on one page and heartfelt and furious about the dissolution of something that was so important to him on the next. So... This is cool, and I wish Madrox were a more central character in the rest of of this run. From what I understand, he isn't. More central, at least, to the issues that we're looking at today is Mystique. 
she heads to a church in Washington, D.C., where this candle's flame turns into a bunch of tiny skulls that speak to her in, like, an evil font and then flare into this enormous armored goblin made of fire. It is metal as shit. And it is, of course, what you would expect. I mean, we see animated fire in a church. That's gotta be Pyro. The last time we saw him was, indeed, in a church. Wait, but didn't he die at that point? Uh, unclear? I didn't think he did. I don't know. Some of the sources I've read say that it was implied that he did. That wasn't my impression. But, uh, no, he's still around. He's still hanging on, despite having been at death's door due to the legacy virus for literal years at this point. I mean, well done, Pyro. Like, good job. But I think this really does showcase how the legacy virus uh, storyline has kind of maybe gotten a little out of hand. Like, it's been so critical for so long, it's been just, like, frozen in time. And while we have lost some major, major characters to the Legacy Virus, uh, most notably Ilyana, characters like this just continually surviving it for dozens and dozens and dozens of issues kind of dull its effect as it goes on. Yeah, it's really lost its sense of urgency at this point. Yeah, and, you know, we've talked about that in a lot of the X books. I mean, sometimes it works. Like, we like Generation X as a slow book. That fits the feel of Generation X very well. But these slow-burning, as it were, plot lines, I don't know. You really do have to wrap them up. You can't just keep treading water with them indefinitely, or else it's really easy to stop caring. Like, if the legacy virus is around, it should be the biggest thing going on in the X universe until it is resolved in some way. And right now, it's just sort of become, like, a mutant-killing shrug. Anyway, Pyro is happy to work for Mystique in her current, ambiguous plan that we're pretty sure is the assassination of her son, Graydon Creed. And he sees this as as redemption. This is something that is, is going to make amends for all of the things that he's done, all of the crimes he's committed, all of the lives he's taken. Um... And he says, you know, I don't have enough strength in me to think about the right and the wrong of what we're about to do. But obviously, whatever it is, he feels like it's a chance for redemption. Yep. And when X-Factor finally tracks down the once-again-escaped mystique to this church, she and Pyra are gone, having left only the word SOON scrawled in red over a Graydon Creed campaign poster. Jay, do you think that campaign poster was already in the church, or did they bring it with them to remind themselves of who Graydon Creed looked like in this particular issue with this particular artist? On account of deep cynicism, I'm going to say it was probably already in the church. Oh, yeah, yeah, good point. Well, uh, anyway, it's defaced now, so take that poster, and I guess church that put up the poster. And Graydon Creed. Fucking Creighton Creed. That brings us to X-Factor number 130, A Mother's Eyes. Written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Eric Battle, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Glennis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Colia Fuchs. This is such a big deal issue. I mean, spoilers, it's the assassination of Graydon Creed. Everything has been leading up to this across multiple X-Books. But we have a fill-in artist here, and also the issue is kind of incoherent and and not very good. It's uh kind of unfortunate. I was I was hoping for more. Um so Eric Battle, he actually didn't do a lot of Marvel. Mostly it was a bit of Marvel 2099. Uh he's mostly known for his early work with Milestone. So uh Eric Battle, good job getting a prominent X book in the 90s. The cover itself is pretty sweet though. It's Mystique holding a gun looking through a hole that she's blown in what 
I realized was another Graydon Creed campaign poster. Like, she destroys so many Graydon Creed campaign posters, but uh, at first glance just looks like she has shot a hole in presumably Graydon Creed and we're looking at her through it, which is dark. If only. So, it is the evening before the presidential election, and the issue actually came out um, around December 1996, so, yeah, timely, I guess. And Mystique is doing what she does best, which is when she's not escaping from X-Factor, which is firing holes into more of her son's campaign posters and assuring Pyro that they're going to do what has to be done. And for his part, he actually briefly catches on fire during this scene due to the virus. Remember, the legacy virus makes mutants' powers harder to control. He looks like he's perpetually healing from moderate burns, and that's something Eric Battle does very, very well in the art here. Well, and, and Glynis Oliver as well. Ah, yes, good point. Absolute credit to her and Al Milgram for that matter. Speaking of characters' appearances, uh, we, we cut over to DC where Graydon Creed once again looks like a completely different person. Yeah, he's bulkier than he was in Uncanny Number 340. He's got black hair now instead of brown. It's a different style, a totally different facial structure. Ah, jeez. And he's got X-Factor to contend with not as opponents they are there to protect him they burst in although they do keep all the walls intact so maybe jamie was right that x-factor isn't x-factor anymore Sabretooth continually mocks his son graydon about dad and mom and there's this one delightful panel of Sabretooth sticking his tongue out between his pointy teeth with drool just running down his chin as he points to his son with a claw he is like, not just menacing, he is so over-the-top menacing. Like, I don't blame Graydon Creed for being freaked out by X-Factor. This team's PR department used to be much, much better. And you thought your dad jokes were bad. Ugh, yikes. Outside, Val Cooper soon catches Mystique trying to sneak into the rally disguised as Val Cooper. Uh, Mystique points out that she's been continually working on hacking Forge's shapeshifting inhibitor, where she can't shapeshift into X-characters, basically. Apparently that's why she's kept trying to do it over and over, even though it causes her pain and doesn't work, which, you know, fine. Forge is a really good inventor, but Mystique is super devious and she knows how to manipulate him. I'm okay with this. And it works pretty well, apparently, because she escapes into the rally's crowd again, shifting continually. And this part is great. This part is super tense, as X-Factor cases the crowd for Mystique, knowing she could be anyone, and Creed starts his confident, bigoted speech— and it lasts for like a page and a half. It's so good when it's going on. Like, that should have been the bulk of the issue. It could have been this this tense quasi-action scene as we wonder what's going to happen. How is it going to resolve? You talked about this issue being a bit incoherent, and I think a lot of the lack of coherence that we're seeing is a product of the pacing. Yeah, the pacing is just off. It's really wonky. Because, yeah, on the next page, they find Mystique disguised as a random dude about to fire some kind of a 90s techno gun thing at Graydon. And they immediately cuff and restrain her, and they also grab Pyro shortly thereafter. And she begs them to listen before it's too late, but they don't, so she just says that what happens next is on them and just sort of talks around the whole situation. Raven, you're a villain. You're allowed to interrupt. You can be rude. The fact that she's willing to interrupt Creed's speech with a gun, but she's not willing to tell X-Factor what's going on, becomes utterly ludicrous when we find out what she was actually up to. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, this is such an important event. Everything has been building up to this, and it has to deliver, and it 
doesn't. The way it wraps up is both incoherent and a, a letdown. And, you know, let's let's get to that. L- but first, let's talk about some things that are more fun, because as Graydon Creed orders Mystique, his would-be assassin, as far as he knows, to be arrested and taken away, he whispers to her hatefully, and he refers to himself as, and I quote, the fruit of your tainted loins, and Sabretooth as he who sired me. Like, Raiden, damn, where was that in your speechifying? Also, now I have tainted love stuck in my head, except it's tainted loins. Whoa, tainted loins. Yeah, yeah, Graydon's definitely going full my immortal here. Oh, he totally is! And they do indeed take Mystique away after Graydon Creed has uh, done his, his more intimate speechifying at her. And Mystique just mocks Val Cooper as Val drives her away in the government mobile, saying, That's always been your problem, Val. You sit back, do your job, and never question why. Why Sabretooth and I are on the team. Why a bigot like Creed could get so far in the campaign. Can't you see it was all a setup? It was all part of a bigger plan, and today you and X-Factor are about to help make history. Graydon Creed is going to die, and you all might as well have been holding the gun. I could have stopped it, but you just set human-mutant relations back 20 years. Mystique, so what you're saying is that you were actually trying to prevent your son's assassination, and you didn't, again, think to interrupt anyone to say... No, it's cool. This is a force field gun, not an assassination gun. Right. God damn it. Like, that, I think, is the least plausible thing. And we have some more implausible things coming up, but that is the least plausible thing about this issue. The fact that this monumentally important event that fucking triggers Operation Zero Tolerance, one of the worst things ever to happen to mutants, was because Raven didn't say, uh, hey guys, I'm just trying to protect him, there's still an assassin out there. Like... That's as long as it would have taken, and like X-Men history for the next many years would have changed. So, the next thing that happens is that, just as Mystique predicted, a shot is fired, and not only does Creed die, he immediately disintegrates into ash. I had a friend, uh, we, we had a friend who used to collect uh, Disintegrate Magic the Gathering cards back in college. I guess they would do something like that, too. Maybe somebody used one of those. I suppose so. So, yeah, and a nearby computer screen says in all caps computer font, Reed was the first. There will be others. You, Mystique, are next. So this assassination is going to remain a mystery for almost five years. And it's finally, I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to say it's finally resolved, but it's sort of finally resolved in, in Fabian Nassaz's X-Men Forever miniseries. So I read all of that because the internet had told me that was what answered this question. It had said that the real assassin was Mystique from the future, which, I mean, okay, it's X-Men. You know what? Fine. Fine. But the way it plays out in X-Men Forever, like, it's a fascinating series full of lots of continuity, and I still don't understand it. Like, Mystique and some other mutants are picked up by Prosh, you know, the... Professor AI that used to raise Cable and the ship that X-Factor used to live in sort of mixed together, same thing. And uh, they have to go through a bunch of parts of their past, and that includes sending the version of Mystique from 2001 or whatever back to this event where she inhabits her younger body, Days of Future Past style, 
and is forced by fate to set up a remote disintegration ray on a timer to kill Graydon Creed. So Mystique from like the late 90s is trying to protect Graydon Creed using a force field gun from the disintegration ray that her body, but the mind of her future self, just set up. I mean, by X-Men standards, that's Tuesday. I mean, I guess, but to have such a major, major mystery resolved so many years later in such a roundabout, bizarre way, like, if you want to have a big mystery of who killed Graydon Creed, fine, by all means, go for it. Make it a big part of the plot for the next year, and then do something with it. Don't just leave it hanging like it's the freaking legacy virus until it's wrapped up with a quiet fart years later. I mean, no offense, Mr. Nisiesa, your series is just fine, but that aspect of the plot is not my favorite. Wow. Wow, Miles. That's the thing. Like, this event right here is emblematic of so many of the parts of the mid to late 90s of X-Men that I don't like. There's a lot to love in this era. There's absolutely a lot to love in this era. But you have these plot lines that are strung along and strung along and strung along, and everything builds up and builds up and builds up, and then the resolution just doesn't happen. Other plot lines take over, and these plot lines just sort of fizzle out like i don't know if that's an artifact of from what we've read of scott lobdell that he just wouldn't really necessarily know how things would resolve he would just sort of continue writing and adding new mysteries or if this is some of the infamous editorial interference from marvel's editorial at the time on the x line but it is deeply deeply frustrating and damn it i like liking things but i do not like this habit of the mid to late 90s and thus begins 1997 with the assassination of Graydon Creed. So what do you think, Jay? This is a really big event. Was X-Factor the right book for it, or should it have been in one of the X-Men books, since they're the central X-Books? I think if it was going to be as big a deal as it's played as, it should have been in several. Oh, okay, like sort of different angles on the same event? Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, no, that would have made sense to me. That said, if you're going to have it in one... I think I'm actually okay with it being an X-Factor. X-Factor is the book that's all about the government. It's got Mystique and Sabretooth Creed's parents in it. So, you know, that seems fine. I just wish it had been done rather differently. Yeah, yeah. But you know who we wouldn't change? Our listeners. And they've got questions. Brad asks via email, I've recently been able to get back into reading the current X-Line thanks to Marvel Unlimited, albeit a few months behind. But I'm finding it hard to keep track of which series are ending and picking up somewhere else. Do you have a good reference place to make sure you're not missing something? So, I believe you're referring to the relaunching of some of the X titles between Reign of X, which is basically Krakoa Year 2, into new books for Destiny of X, which is basically Krakoa Year 3. The only real official place I could find was the last page of each of those books that was relaunching under a different title, but I couldn't find a big checklist or anything, which I agree would have been totally handy. So let's just do a quick rundown. Before you dive into any of these, though, you definitely want to read the Bridge miniseries, uh, which are Inferno, X-Lives of Wolverine, and X-Deaths of Wolverine. Those are between the second and third Krakoan years. Uh, if you miss Planet Size X-Men number one, which is a one-shot during Reign of X, uh, that's really important, so read that too. Some of the Reign of X books just ended. They don't have uh, an equivalent in the immediate era. Cable ended with a wrap-up one-shot called Cable Reloaded by Al Ewing. Children of the Atom, Hellions, X-Corp, X-Factor, those all ended. They don't have current incarnations. Uh, 
sadly in many cases. Some of the books kept going with existing numbering, New Mutants, Wolverine, X-Force, X-Men Unlimited, which is only available on Marvel Unlimited, but if you have that, I highly recommend reading it. It's actually really, really good. Some books relaunched under the same title but with new creators, namely Marauders and X-Men. But the ones you're referring to, books that relaunched with a new number one and a new title, Excalibur becomes Knights of X, Sword becomes X-Men Red, Way of X, after a one-shot stopover with X-Men The Onslaught Revelation, becomes Legion of X. And those are all at least with the same writers, if not necessarily as the same artists. And uh, so far, they're all really good, too. There's also one book that's brand new, which is Immortal X-Men, which is phenomenal and features Sinister at his most dramatic. Uh, I'd also recommend uh, Not Missing Secret X-Men number 1 from Toward the End of Reign of X. That's a really good one, too, by Teeny Howard. Uh, so there you go. I hope that's helpful. Uh, I understand that is an inherent flaw of the way superhero comics do things. Like, if you're trying to catch up, not following it week to week, it's really, really confusing. So I wish you luck. And if you would have an easier time following that in written form, we'll make sure that it's it's in the visual companion to this episode. Oh, yeah. Good call. David asks via Twitter, how or when did Colossus stop being the juggernaut? So that happened, David, in Uncanny X-Men number 20. That's the Uncanny X-Men number 20 from 2012, which should place it as far as which series it's in. And in that issue, Magic was able to use her powers as a Hell Lord to sever his connection to Sidorak while they were in Limbo. She did that using the Soul Sword. Oh, that makes sense. And as for when Colossus became the Juggernaut, that was during Fear itself, if I recall, right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually a really cool era— like, that was interesting stuff for Colossus. Colossus works really well when he's angsty, as long as you don't, you know, take it too far, like in this era of X-Men. And uh, that was a great way of doing it. Also, the Colossus costume and the Juggernaut costume work, like, surprisingly well together. They really do. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, but this time we wanted to thank some of the folks who donated to Equality Florida to fight for queer and trans youth during our April donation dr- drive. So a ton of gratitude goes out to Jody Troutman, Malia Schreier, Hunter Rasmussen, Trisha Voda, Rebecca Tex Smith, Gem and Lavender, Jimmy Berkey, Dave Taylor, Matt and Pete from Floating Hand Studios, Hugh J. O'Donnell, a boy named Art, Connor Mulvaney, Ryan Watt, John, Rachel, and Calvin Derrick, James K., Tim Oliver Grow, Eric William Green, Devin McMullen, Jared, Ed Randall, Mark Turetsky, Tice von Domberg, Jamie Henthorn, Joe Burns, Rich A. Robin, Cliff Jarrison, Ben S., Kevin Ewing, Tony Jansen Cragness, Chris Anka, Jason Lynn Mitchell, Josh Garvey, Sean Roberts, Yoon Ha Lee, Zachary Jenkins, Mike Elliott, Matt Kay, Michael Manlove Tyler, Benjamin Aldred, Play Comics, and Jeffrey. And I believe with that, as of this recording, we are all caught up as far as names of people who got back to us. So thank you so much to everyone who donated to the Equality Florida campaign. It is an incredibly important cause, uh, fighting the Don't Say Gay bill. There are obviously many, many incredibly important causes right now, so please don't, don't limit yourself. But we're really happy that everyone has come together for this one. Yeah, we just found out that our, our uh, former high school, in fact, specifically, has been falling real flat on that front. Oh, God damn it, Pineview. Yeah. We, we all do what we can. It feels you know, doubly relevant to have, have been able to make that contribution in April. Um, and again, if you haven't heard your name read in the last few episodes and you know it should have been, check your email, see if we caught, got caught in your spam filter or something like that. Um, 
and hopefully we'll catch you on the next go-round. Yes, indeed. But meanwhile, with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, it's Hawk Talk, and we'll be back to our usual nonsense in two weeks. When Frank Castle meets Carl the Executioner. Executioner.